Good morning again. If you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 19, beginning in verse 38. We're going to be in John 19 today, talking, of course, about the, the resurrection story. It's a powerful story, a story that has changed history. Um, probably, it's not probably, it's the most important event in the history of the world, uh, where death was conquered once and for all uh, for you and me. So we're going to look at this story. It begins in, in John 19, verse 38. It starts like this. It says, Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, because he had feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. In the garden, a new tomb, in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was a Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Crucifixion has happened, one of the most painful deaths imaginable. And the Sabbath is coming, and so they're in a hurry to get Jesus buried. And so Joseph and Nicodemus appear, essentially out of nowhere, to do that. If you remember the story, if you've heard the story before, Jesus' disciples, who had, who had followed him until this point, have essentially abandoned him. Once he was arrested, Peter was, was faithful. John followed him to the trials, and, and Peter denies him three times, just like Jesus said he would. And they've all ran away with their tails between their legs. And here we have Joseph and Nicodemus, who had been secret disciples of Jesus, who are now no longer secret, who have decided that now's the moment to take their stand. And so Joseph makes a huge and a very bold move by going to Pilate and requesting the body of Jesus. When he does that, he can no longer go back in time, right? He can't be a secret follower of Jesus anymore. It's out in the open. You see what's happening here. The people who had followed Jesus for three and a half years of his ministry in the wide open, who had been proud to follow this Jesus, who had watched all that Jesus had done, are hiding. And those who have lived in secret, those who had been hiding, are now out in the open. The the death of Jesus has changed some things, hasn't it? Those who at one time had no, no fear of following Jesus are now living in fear that they might be next, that they too may be arrested imprisoned or possibly even murdered like Jesus was. And the men who had, who had come, to Nicodemus, of course, who had come to Jesus at night, Joseph, who had been hiding his, his, his belief in this Jesus, that he is the Messiah, the one who was to come, they are now the ones stepping into that void. And God uses people at just the right time, doesn't he, to accomplish his purposes. And Joseph just so happens to have a tomb nearby that hasn't been used yet, And so that's where they're going to put the body of Jesus. Nicodemus brings enough spices for a king. I don't know if you caught that in the the story. I normally look behind me, but there's no projector today. It's not not working. If you caught it in the story, you have to look in the Bible because it's not up there. Nicodemus brought 75 pounds of spices to put on the body of Jesus. Now they do this, of course, and I know this is kind of the disgusting part of the story, but they do that to hide the odor. 
I mean, how the Jewish people buried, if you were, if you were wealthy enough to have a tomb, you'd, you'd place somebody on a rock slab that was inside the tomb, and you would essentially wait for all their flesh to go away. You'd collect their bones, put them in an ossuary with their name on it, and that's how you could store more people's bodies inside the tomb. It was a family tomb. So the, the spices was there to kill the odor. Now, luckily for you and me, the odor wasn't going to come because Jesus was going to stay in that tomb long enough. But they didn't know that. So Nicodemus brings all the spices, 75 pounds worth, which is an, it's, it's a lot of money. Joseph gives him his tomb, which is a lot of money to have that tomb made. And all of a sudden, they're taking a step of faith, aren't they? There's a few details I want you to, I want you to pay attention to. Uh, one, that these guys used to live in fear like the disciples are now. You saw that earlier. It says, now Joseph, in verse 38, now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. Now, why are, why are John and James and Peter and all those guys, why are they hiding now? Same reason, right? They feared the Jewish leaders. They feared that they were next. Another detail I want you to see, I want you to hear, is in verse 41. It says, at the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb. Just keep that in your mind, okay? Just remember that. The place in where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and where the garden was, there was a tomb. That's going to come back up later. Okay, I'm just giving you a hint right now. That just, just remember that. Continuing the story to John chapter 20, verse 1 and 2, it says, Early on the first day of the week, that's today, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. What we have here is we have his disciples, his, his closest disciples, who were all male, are hiding. And we have Mary, and there's some other women in some of the other gospel stories that are at the tomb the first day. Right? As soon as the sun comes up, they're there. They're, at, they're there at dawn. They're willing to sacrifice. They're willing to, to go just in case. that They could be persecuted and prosecuted as well, but they don't care. And Mary's there, and she's the one who discovers that the tomb is empty. She runs back to the disciples who are hiding and says, something's happened. Her thought is someone has stolen Jesus' body. He's gone. And her words are, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. She's concerned. You can hear it in her voice. Even though you're reading it, you can hear it. She doesn't, she doesn't know what's going on. This person she's followed, this person that she believed wholeheartedly in, now even in his death, he's being desecrated. But they, they, they had him in a tomb and it was done and over with and now someone has, has dared to steal him, has dared to take him away and she can't believe it. So this is what happens in verses 3 through 10. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running. But the other disciple, the other disciple, by the way, is John. He writes that because it's his gospel. And it's, in the ancient world, it's viewed as, as arrogant to write yourself into this story. So the reason it says the other disciple is because that's how they did it. So the other disciple is John, the author of this, this particular gospel. Both were running. The other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. And Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. 
Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. We have a foot race to the tomb. John's presumably younger, so he wins that race. But you notice that John gets there. He looks inside the tomb, sees something's off, and stands there, but not Peter, right? If you know the Gospels, you know Peter is he's, he's the... He's the bull in the china shop, uh, to put it nicely. He often acts before he thinks. Um, if your spouse does that, don't look at them right now. Right? It's not a good time. We all can be accused of that from time to time. We, most time it's our mouth, though, right? We speak before we think. Um, Peter does that too. But Peter just, he has, he's full of passion. He's full of fire. And so when he gets there, he's not going to just stand there. and let, He rushes right in. And that's the Peter we've seen throughout the Gospels. This guy who just rushes in, he's willing to try it. When everybody else is standing there with their hands in their pockets looking at their feet, Peter's the one who's like, hey, I'm in. I'm, I'm going. And as we, as we see, as we're, right now we're going to the book of Acts, we see Peter's rewarded for that later on, his leadership. He takes lead in the church. And so Peter just rushes in because why not? And they both go in. They sit, something's up, something's off, and they... They're not sure. They're still not understanding. They're not grasping what's happening. They don't understand that this is what Jesus has been talking about time and time again, especially this last week of his, his life, is that, hey, this is coming, this is happening. But I want you to see the last verse. Remember, we had Joseph and we had Nicodemus who, were, who had to hide, who were secret disciples, and Jesus dies, and they, they're no longer secret disciples anymore. Now, what have our other disciples been doing? The ones who've been out in the open? And verse 10 tells us, They go there, they see the tombs empty, they're not quite understanding, it's not all clicking yet, we're not quite there. And verse 10 it says, and the disciples went back to where they were staying. They went back to hiding. They go in there, they see the empty tomb, they're not sure what's going on, and they think to themselves, we don't want to be here too long, because something might happen to us, and they leave. See the flip-flop we've had. Disciples who were once proud to stand next to Jesus now in his death are in hiding and the ones who were secret are now standing by him. It's not going to last that way for long, but that's what's, what's going on. The story continues in verse 11 through 14. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. Notice she doesn't leave. She's one who's faithful. Peter and John look in there and go, okay, I don't, someone took him, something happened, not sure what's going on, and they go back to hiding. And Mary's still there. Mary stood outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said. I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. We have one person who is remaining faithful, don't we? One person who's sticking it out, and it's Mary. It's not the person you would have chose, by the way, if you went down the list. But she's got a fire burning inside her. She's got what it takes. Everybody else has given up and gone home, and Mary refuses. There's often times in life where this is the person who succeeds, isn't it? Everybody else has cut and gone home and said, let's call it a day. And once someone stays and says, no, we can keep pushing, we can keep going. We've got this. Mary's that person. She's got a fire inside of her that says, I'm not going home. I'm not going home until I know what's happened to him. 
Nobody else seems to care at this moment. Mary. She sees Jesus and doesn't realize it's Jesus because she hasn't connected this whole resurrection thing either. And so let's see what happens as the story continues in verse 15 through 18. Jesus asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord, and she told them that he had said these things to her. She sees Jesus, doesn't realize it's Jesus, and so she's just crying. And Jesus asks her a question, why, you know, why are you crying? Who's are you looking for? And there's an important detail in verse 15. Remember I told you earlier, I want you to remember that the tomb is placed in a what? In a garden. In verse 15, it tells us that Mary, thinking Jesus is the gardener, said, Sir, if you've carried him away, if you've put him somewhere, just let me know where he is and I'll get him. See that? That's called fire. That's called passion. Mary, who's probably most likely smaller than Jesus, doesn't care that she has, there's just no way she's going to take a dead body who, that weighs more than she is and take that dead body anywhere. But she doesn't care. She doesn't care. There's no one there to help her. There's no one there to help her drag Jesus' lifeless body back into the tomb, but she doesn't care because she has it here. And when you have it here, you can do all kinds of things that other people who don't have it here can't do. I don't care what it is that you're doing. If you've got a fire and a passion that people don't have, I don't care if it's a sport or it's an activity, it's a job, I don't care what it is. If you have it here, you can outdo everybody else that doesn't have it here. And Mary's convinced she can take this body of Jesus and she can find it and she can put it back where it's supposed to be. And then something crazy happens. Jesus speaks just one word, her name, and the light is switched. He just says, Mary. And she goes, wait a second. I've heard that before. I know that voice. That's not a gardener. That's the king. She cries out to him. Rabbi, teacher, great one. It's you. And because Mary has passion, because Mary has fire, because Mary is faithful and refuses to quit, she's the first person to see a resurrected Jesus. And not only is she the first person to see him, she's the first person to preach the good news that the tomb is empty. Because she has it here. She's got it right here. What does Jesus tell her? He says, Don't hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. In verse 18, Mary Magdalene went. Jesus says, go, and what does she do? She goes. She goes to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. 
resurrection. Because Mary is faithful. She doesn't quit. She doesn't give up. She gets to see him and be the first to give this good news. We can't let those details pass us by, can we? We have to address just part of you here. Ladies, if at any point you have been involved in church and you've been, you've been made to feel like a second-class citizen, I'm so deeply sorry because you're not. If it wasn't for women throughout the history of the Bible, you and I wouldn't be here today. Because they're just faithful, aren't they? They just don't quit, do they? There is no love closer to God's on this earth than the love of a mother. It's the closest thing we see to the love of God. And here we have a woman with, with what we probably believe is maybe a little checkered past. If you, if you look at the Bible and, and see church history, she's, she hasn't been a saint all her life. Which one of us has been, by the way, right? Spoiler alert, that's called none of us. But she's faithful. She gets it. She understands. And so she sticks it out when everybody else has left. And she's rewarded with the, the greatest news ever told. And she's the first one to see, like she goes down in history as the first person to see a resurrected Jesus. It doesn't get any better than that. Not because she's a woman, but because she's faithful. Because she sticks it out when everybody else goes home and she's still there. The question we have to ask ourselves is, can the same be, true, be said of us? Is it true of us? We people who have, have the fortitude, have the ability to push through even when things aren't going our way. Are we willing to stick with this Jesus and say, I'm in no matter what? Because nowhere in time did God promise us a life that is going to just be smooth and free of obstacles and no, no bump. Like that's not, if, matter of fact, if you, if you pay attention to the Bible, uh, people who are faithful to God, it's actually quite opposite. More often than not, they face all kinds of obstacles in life. But they face those obstacles with joy, with mercy, with love and compassion and grace because they've partnered with God. And Mary has chosen to partner with God, and she is rewarded in a mighty, mighty way. Now, the story doesn't end with Mary. It'd be great even if it ended there, but it didn't. It continues to get better. It continues in verse 19 through 23. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, our big, strong, tough men are hiding behind doors right now, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Jesus gets inside that upper room. It's locked, but it doesn't matter because Jesus, locks don't really matter to him. And he, he gives them a rather, rather bland greeting, peace be with you, which is the Jewish way of shalom, right? I mean, that's, that's pretty common greeting. But he repeats it again in verse 21. It's peace be with you. Where are they? What, what are they doing? Yeah, they're in a room hiding. I, I don't think this is just a normal greeting. I think it's Jesus' way of saying, hey, you guys like going to 
toughen up here or what? The Jewish idea, the Hebrew idea of peace isn't our idea of peace. We think of peace, we think of absence of conflict, right? We're not fighting. But the word that you, you see in, in Hebrew for peace is, shares a root with the word for perfect or complete. So when you hear the word peace in the Jewish idea, it's not just absence of conflict, it's wholeness and completeness and fullness. And Jesus is thinking, if you're living in fear, are you living whole? Are you living complete? And the answer to that is no. Right? If we live in fear, we are missing out on all kinds of things in life, aren't we? And Jesus is saying, guys, what do you, like what? Like he appears before them, back, like they were there, they saw him, him dead, and now he's alive, and he's thinking to them, like, what are you all afraid of? I mean, if Jesus has conquered death, and, and the promise comes to us as well, what do we have to fear? And the answer to that is nothing. Nothing. Death is the most frightening thing, isn't it? To lose someone we love? It's scary. But in Christ, it's not all that scary, is it? Because the promise is that life continues on and it's actually going to get much, much better. So Jesus says, hey, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you, which means you have to leave this room. But you have to unlock the doors and go outside, right? I mean, that's what Jesus, it's, he's doing it very nice and very compassionate way. Most of us would say, hey, dummies, leave, right? Jesus is saying, guys, you need to understand that this isn't, like this little room, that's great that you're all in here being together, but it's time to go. And then something neat happens in verse 22. It says, And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. It's interesting. It's kind of fascinating if you think about it. He breathed on them. You're like, well, one, I hope he had a breathman in or gum or something, right? He's like, what's he breathing on? There's something much more powerful going on. If you go to the very beginning of your Bible, you're going to find something really interesting. Remember I told you the tomb is where? It's in a garden. Mary, when she saw Jesus, thought he was the gardener. Jesus is now breathing on people. The Bible, this is the Bible's way of saying, pay attention. And it does that quite frequently. Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth. When they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth. There was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. So the Bible begins with God doing some breathing. He fashions man, Adam, which that's a terrible name, by the way. It just means a dirt man. I'm sorry if anyone here is named Adam, by the way. That's just what that, in Hebrew, it just means, it's just the stuff he's made of, right? It's just dirt man. That's all that means. So, if, I mean, if you're named Adam, I apologize if you didn't know that, but it's, it is what it is. You're, I mean, don't tell people that if you're named that. Don't be like, hi, I'm Dirt Man, right? But just, that's what it means. So, God creates Adam out of the dust, out of the dirt, and does something. He breathes into him the breath of life. Here in, in John's account, we have Jesus in the upper room, and what's Jesus doing? breathing on them, and it says they received the Holy Spirit. Now when God, here in the book of Genesis, 
God takes Adam, and where's, where's God put Adam? Do you remember? Holy smokes, you guys read your Bible. He puts Adam in the garden to take care of it. Adam's gardener. The Bible begins with God breathing into Adam, the first gardener, creating him as a living being, creating Eve next, and placing them in the garden. And here we are, all these thousands of years later, in the story of Jesus. And he's crucified and put in a tomb in a garden. And when he comes back to life, he's breathing life into people. Like if you read that and you don't think Genesis, we're not connecting two and two. What's happening with this Jesus is a new life, isn't it? In, 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 in the story of Genesis, we have life beginning. In the story in John, we have a new life beginning. Because it didn't take Adam very long to mess up the garden, did it? And he chooses to, to do something that God says, hey, don't do. And he messes everything up. And when Adam does that, what does he bring? Paul tells us in the book of Romans with him. When, when Adam sins, he brings about death. And here we have a brand new Adam, an Adam who's much better, by the way. Jesus, who's crucified in a garden, put in a tomb in a garden, and comes back to life out of the garden and is breathing in people. What's he doing? He's letting us know. He's saying, hello, death has been conquered once and for all. What the, what the first Adam brought in the garden was sin and death. What the second Adam is doing in a garden is bringing about life and forgiveness. It's a pretty powerful story, isn't it, of Jesus saying, what Adam once did, I'm undoing it. We're taking the Garden of Eden and we're restoring it back to how it was supposed to be. Because see, death was never part of the plan. Sin brings about death. So when God puts Adam and Eve in the garden, his goal is for them to live with him forever. Right? Forever. That's the goal. And they mess it up, and God says, you can't live this way forever. You can't live in sin forever, and kicks them out of the garden. And here we are, our garden again, and what is Jesus doing? Restoring life. It's good news. It's always been good news. It'll always be good news. Hopefully, you have embraced this new life. Now, we're going to end here with the story of Thomas. It's... It's our story, by the way. Verse 24 and 25. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. How bummed is he, right? Like he's out doing something. He's out running errands. He's gone to the bank and Jesus comes back and all the disciples are like, hey, did you see Jesus? Like, no, I was running an errand, right? Like, dude, he was here. You're like, no, he wasn't. He's dead. I mean, if you're going to miss something, it's a terrible thing. We've all missed like a party before and you've heard about it later. Like, oh, man, I wish I would have been there. What about this? Like, how bad do you feel if you're Thomas? You're like, I, oh, I had a thing with my, my parents. And it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, you missed Jesus. He's alive, by the way. So Thomas is a little bummed, like we all would be, right? So the other disciples are telling him, verse 25, we've seen the Lord. And he's like, what? You guys are crazy. He said to them, unless I see nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. Thomas is like, you guys are crazy. You're lying. This is a weird April Fool's thing, right? Like, this isn't, it's not funny. It's too soon, right? It's too soon. And Thomas is like, unless I see him, I'm not happening. 
And how many of us are this way, right? Unless we see it, unless we were there, we don't believe it. This passage is for you, by the way, if you're that way. And it continues in verse 26 through 29. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them this time. He probably hasn't left, right? He's like, no way am I missing it again. It says that the doors were locked. Jesus came in and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, he singles him out, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Thomas waits a whole week to see Jesus. Jesus comes and calls him right out right away. says, hey Thomas, here you go man, if you want to... You want to put your finger in the hole or my sides here? Like if and Thomas realizes, whoa, okay, they weren't, they weren't playing around. This is for real. And look at his exclamation of praise in verse 28, which is what we should do. But this is, I know this is going to be difficult for all of us. When we're wrong, we have some choices to make, don't we? We can continue to be wrong and be stubborn. That's what we most, that's most time what we do, right? We try to bury it, we hide it, we pretend like we come up with excuses. Thomas is wrong, right? Thomas is like, hey man, unless I, no, he's not alive, I don't believe it unless I see him. Jesus confronts him and says, hey Thomas, here I am, what do you think? And Thomas goes, okay, yep, wrong. It's funny how far that will go when we just admit when we're actually wrong. Difficult, I know. When we just say, yep, nope, I'm wrong, I'm sorry, I apologize. Thomas does way better than that. Look at his exclamation. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Thomas knows exactly what this means. He says, wait a second here. He's, he's come back to life. This isn't, this isn't just something, this is huge. And exclaims about this Jesus. Jesus, you're my Lord, personal, and my God. You're it. You are who you have said you are. And look at Jesus' response in verse 29. Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. But this is the part for us. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That's, that's you and me. All these thousands of years later, we don't have the ability to put our hands in the hole in Jesus' hand, do we? We're to touch his side. But we open up the book, we can read it, and we have the chance, the ability to believe all these years later that God is who he said he is, that he has always been and will always be faithful. Brothers and sisters, the tomb is still empty. Let's make sure your heart isn't. The tomb is empty. It's been that way all along, and it will stay that way until Jesus comes back. The tomb is empty. Our hearts better not be. What are you filling it with? There's all kinds of things, all kinds of choices we have in this world to fill our hearts with all kinds of things. Some of them good, some of them not so good. We can fill our heart with the very best thing if we make the choice. We invite this Jesus in. We say, God, I'm in. I'm in. Do what you want with me. I'm all in. Mary chose to be in, didn't she? 
She filled her heart with this Jesus. And she got to do some pretty amazing things. These disciples who've been hiding are going to make that choice, by the way. Almost all of them dying for this Jesus, all except John, and he went through an awful lot as well. Because the story's real, because it's true, because the tomb was actually empty. If the tomb isn't empty, these guys don't die for this stuff. Not going to happen. The tomb is empty. Now you and I make the choice of what we fill our heart with. You can fill it with him or you can fill it with all kinds of other things. Those other things will be fun for a while. They always are. They're fun for a while. The day comes where they're not fun anymore. And then you can choose to fill your heart with some more junk that's fun for a while and you'll have fun for a little bit while longer and then that'll run out and and you'll keep looking and you'll spend your entire life searching for something that you cannot... Take the place of our God. Just can't. We've been there and we've done it, haven't we? We've filled our hearts with all kinds of other things. None of them will satisfy. Only our God will do. I encourage you, if you haven't yet made that choice to fill your heart with this God, make it. It's the best thing you will ever do. It's going to be hard. I'm not going to lie to you. It's not going to be easy. But it'll be worth it. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity we have to come here today to to remember your sacrifice, your death on this cross. But Father, as we celebrate resurrection for another year, God, we thank you that the tomb is empty, that it's always been empty. And with that, we have hope, hope that can be found in no one else and nowhere else but in you, God. Hope that we have that this life isn't the end. God, we can fill our hearts, and we have, God, me included. We've, we've filled our hearts with all kinds of other things, none of them which can truly satisfy, none of them that get the job done. God, only you can fill that, that void that we have. And God, so we invite you in today and every day to everything we have and to everything we are, God. Would you change us? Would you mold us? Would you shape us to look more and more like you with every day, helping us to, to draw other people to you? We thank you for your love, your grace, your compassion, and your mercy, which have no end and no beginning. They are far beyond our comprehension and understanding, God. We are so grateful that you love us and that you care so deeply for us. God, thank you that this Jesus was faithful to the mission you sent him on. Help us to be faithful to ours. God, we thank you and we love you, Paulus, in the powerful and healing name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said. Amen. Amen.